This podcast is produced by Clarence Valley Community Church. If you benefit from our ministry and you would like to support us, details can be found at our website, cvcc.com.au. There you can also find out more details about our church. We're going to be bouncing around Matthew 11, 12 and 13. I'll guide you in that, but if you've got your Bible with you, you want to turn to Gospel of Matthew. I wanted to start off by saying today, people are really opinionated. Like every time I turn on the TV, myself included, everybody has so many different opinions and different ways that that they like to do things. And, you know, honestly, it's not always a bad thing. Sometimes people can be too opinionated. They can really be forceful in the way that they like things. Uh, But other times we can just have differences of opinion. But today, we're going to be considering having a difference of opinion to Jesus. If some of you have been in the faith for some time, that probably sent a chill down your spine, having a difference of opinion to the Lord Jesus. We must be careful how we listen and how we respond to Jesus. And we're going to get some real world working examples of maybe what not to do. And Jesus is really going to thresh out for us today um, these guys who really just wanted to, to try and put him on the back foot, try and make him look like he's ridiculous, he's not worthy to be heard, not worthy to be obeyed. And um, it really doesn't go well for them. It doesn't. But I also, for, for, for many of us here, though, you might be hearing that and going, well, I've got no problems with Jesus. What Jesus says goes, and that's fine. But then I also maybe want to put this to you, that maybe you are right with Christ. There's no issue there. You're obedient. You, you love Jesus. You love his word, and, and you desire to be obedient. But you might have others around you who are going to act more like the protagonists here with Jesus. And so how might we learn from Christ in dealing with people who just don't get it? So it's a sermon for everyone today. And I'd love to give us more confidence in speaking to people. I'd love for you to go into your workplace, into your mother's groups, into your friendship groups, and and speak about what Christ has done in you. It's exciting news. The gospel, good news. It's exciting. And there's so much to learn from Jesus on how we might be able to transmit this message. But also, again, that warning, how will we receive the message? That that plays into it. Just to give you some context of where I'm going, I'm going to be going to Matthew 12, but I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 11 verse 16 to 19, because I want to give you a bit of a background of of where Jesus is at, what the climate looks like for him. And it's not pretty. Matthew chapter 11, verse 16 to 19, this is Jesus speaking, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played a pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. I just want to pause there, because some of you have read that, and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, and that's fine. Um, What Jesus is saying there is he's speaking about the people. The people are like the children, and they're calling out to one another, 
in the marketplace and they're completely ignoring the, the music from the pipe and the singing from the dirge. And Jesus is going to go on to explain what those two things are and how that's not right. It shouldn't be that way. And we could, we could get that imagery right now. If there's a, and I don't know if you've ever, I've, I've been in this situation. You've got a whole bunch of kids and you're trying to teach them something. And it's just like they go to crazy mode and then they're no longer listening. And no matter what you do, however you try and bring back the lesson, it's gone. They're, they're, they're off with the fairies. That's what Jesus is talking about. Unfortunately, we're not talking about children here. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about his own people. You're not listening. I'll go on. Verse 18. And this is, this is the, the pipe and the dirge. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man, this is Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. God sends you John the Baptist and you make up excuses for why you're not going to listen. God sends his own very son and you make up excuses for why you're not going to listen. And what we're about to find out is they're going to flip this where he's attributing uh, John the Baptist having a demon. Well, they're sort of getting a little bit sick of Jesus and his miracles. And so they're going to now attribute that to his ministry. And then we're going to be talking about the unforgivable sin. Unforgivable in this life and the next life. Jesus goes on from this rebuke of these people who are not listening. Um, in uh, chapter 11, 20 to 24, he, he rebukes the cities. These cities that have, he's been going through, he's been healing people, he's been casting out demons, and they're not listening. Um, Troas, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And he says, if the miracles that were done in you were done in Tyre or Sidon, they'd still be standing. They wouldn't be destroyed. Sodom itself. And everybody recoils when they hear Sodom in the Bible, the, the judgment of God. This is like a, a foreshadowing of, of the fires of hell as God rains down hot sulfur upon Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins. And Jesus says, if these miracles I did were done there, it would still stand today. If you want to do a bit of homework, go home. They apparently have found the place. There's sulfur all over the areas of Sodom, where Sodom and Gomorrah used to stand. Go, go look that up for yourself. There's some real cutting-edge archaeology that's coming out at the moment. But this reaches a climax. So these issues that are happening now in Jesus' ministry, they reach a bit of a climax, and this is where we're, we're going to rest for some time, is Matthew chapter 12, 22 to 32. And it's a bit of a read, but I need you to try and bear with me. People are not listening. God has sent John the Baptist. God has sent his own son, and they're just left in the same headspace. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 to 32. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who, is blind, who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? 
But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you uh, who are evil say to anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Jeez, we ought to be careful how we come to Jesus. Man! They say, they, say, they say half a sentence and Jesus now hits them with potentially a sin that they will now never be forgiven of. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Half a sentence said in anger, bitterness and hatred towards Jesus. After all of the miracles he's done, after all of the confession of John the Baptist, confessing the Lord has come upon you and Half a sentence, and they make ruin of their eternal life. He gives all the evidence one could imagine, yet now they need to defy reality to uphold this hatred towards Jesus. Like it's just ridiculous to even suggest that what Jesus has been doing is of Satan. He's just delivered a man from a demon, but now they say that deliverer is evil. Jesus is evil. And I want to promise you this. There's something else that's behind those words. And think about it. They're actually charging Jesus with a death penalty there. This isn't just like today where we, what is it, freedom of speech, and we can say whatever we want to people and, and just go on with our merry way. And they can say whatever they like to us. No, words have implications. And in this day and age, if you are a diviner, if you are someone who is in contact with the dead or with spiritual forces that God has forbidden, that for Jesus is a death penalty. 
The worst part of this whole, um, the worst part is the whole ministry of Jesus is, has been one of integrity. So this is Jesus' work. It's been of integrity. It's been of humility. And what has he done except point the people back to the Father? That's all he's come to do. He's come to fulfill prophecy, die for our sin, so that we can live in relationship with God. And he said, not one dot, not one tittle will be removed from the law until all things are completed. He has actually not only upheld the law, but he's made the law harder than in the Old Testament because it's a law of the heart now and the motives and intentions of the inner man, not just the external law keeping that was developed over years after the law was given. The law was always based on loving God and loving your neighbor. That never changed. But it's been manipulated, it's been calcified to a point where now they think as long as the external is okay, I can go on with my business. God's not reading the external. God knows the heart. A prophecy is also being fulfilled here in Psalm 69 verse 4. Those who hate me without a reason. Now, there's a bit of a, a question here. How, do, how does he say that you you're, let your children judge you? How are the children casting out demons? These, these Pharisees that make up these claims. And Jesus says, well, if I'm casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, what, who are your children casting them out by? And I want to tell you this. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we get, um, I guess, uh, uh, a full understanding of how to cast out a demon. This is something that was happening at the time of Christ where Satan knows something's going on. He wasn't quite sure, but he knows something's going on. This is the Holy One of God, and we need to do everything we can to stumble this ministry. This is what Satan's been doing from the very start. Stumble the work of God. And guess what, guys? When it's left upon us to do the work of God, I see in my Bible failure after failure after failure. But now Christ has come. And what happened 40 days in the desert? Christ overcame the temptations of Satan. This has never been done before. Even Moses, the one who gave us the law, did not make it into the promised land. Because of his sin. Bit of background there. I believe he is forgiven and he is in heaven. But this was bore before his face, brought before his face. You sinned. You don't enter the, that physical promised land. So how can these children, he says, let these children be your judges of how I cast out demons. Well, there is no mandate on how that actually operates because no one actually knows. But I've got an interesting verse for you here. And I wonder whether this was happening. Because like I say, demons weren't really being cast out of people until Jesus' ministry begins. And it comes from Acts 19, starting at verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, there we go, let your, these priests, let your sons judge you, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, 
Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had an evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That's quite interesting. There was no no talk of, of casting out demons. Jesus hits the scene, and now these sons, apparently are casting out demons. And it, and it doesn't say that it didn't always work. The name of Jesus has such power and such authority that this sounds a little bit weird, but even mediums know the power of Jesus. It's used to get rid of these spirits. Now, alarm bells should go off. Maybe I should throw my life upon his But these young men, they came up against a demon who wasn't going to have it. And they were ravaged. And so Jesus is saying, let them judge you. Because my inclination is, as they were doing the casting out of demons in the name of who? Jesus. That man, that rabbi who's casting out demons, in the name of that man, be gone. And they would flee. Not even Christian. Right. But now we're getting to an interesting point. What's the implication if what Jesus is doing? So this is where this part of that sermon, this sermon where we've got to be careful how quickly we speak. Because what is the implication for these people, these Pharisees, if this is from God? And that's Jesus' argument to them. What's the implication if what I'm doing is from God in light of what you've just spoken to me? horrendous words we would not ever dream of uttering they themselves because of this this pharisaical love of god that they had or this outwardly respect where their lips were close to god their hearts were far from him they would never utter any evil toward god but now in the haste of their speech and we must be careful of this ourselves they have made a claim and not properly processed whether the miracles coming out of Jesus are from God or are from this Beelzebub. And guess what? If it wasn't happening in the Old Testament, they have no way of clarifying. They're just making it up. Dangerous, dangerous territory. And so Jesus decides that he'll give them a little lesson on what it is to cast out a demon. So not only is this from God, but I'll tell you how it operates. All that I know about casting out demons only comes from the words of Jesus. There's there's no other. We don't have have much else. Because it's in him that power and authority is given. And so he talks about a strong man needing to be bound up before you can plunder his house. You can carry off his stuff. What is he talking about? Has anybody ever thought through what he, what he means there? Anybody got any ideas? I want to read it for us again. Verse 29. Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house house i'll give you the answers 
The strong man is Satan. Who binds Satan? Sunday school answer, Jesus. Well done, Philippa. That's a gold star. Amen, he does. What, what's the house? Well, the house is creation. This Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He tries to take some, some foreign royalty to God's creation. But now here's the interesting part. He's bound up. But he talks about carrying off his stuff and plundering his domain or plundering his house. What is that? Well, what did Jesus come to do? Seek and save the lost. We are taken from the grips of Satan himself. In Ephesians, we see that it says that you once belonged to him this prince of the power of the air. But through the precious blood of Jesus, he has no hold of you. All of us, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, will stand before the living God. And guess who's going to be there with us? The great accuser, Satan himself, to say, God, I hold you to your holiness and your righteousness. You say you're good and they have sinned. They belong to me they belong to be where i am going and what will we cry out but for the blood of christ you would be right but i am set free i am a child of the living god but then i like at the end how it says here that then he can plunder his house what's jesus coming to do he's not just saving sinners he is going to recreate all heaven and earth sinless and perfect and the thing i love best is there is no creature alive that could throw us back into sin back into the dominion of darkness because who's the shepherd who will be dwelling with us in all eternity jesus where adam failed to protect the garden from a talking serpent if you see a talking serpent you kick him out of your house when when adam failed to kick out that serpent jesus just overcame him for 40 days and 40 nights and that job does not finish in eternity he will always be our shepherd he always has our back and that work has already begun in you if you believe But then Jesus ups the ante. I mean, that's all well and good for us who believe. But now he's going to challenge these Pharisees and he's going to say at verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. What will you do when the great accuser stands before the living God and calls you out on your sin? Not only that, your own heart, your own conscience will bear witness against you. Well, we know. We've gathered with Jesus. We are for him and not against him. And he will be the one at your side. No father, her debt is paid. No father, his debt is paid. So we've got a theology now on what it is to know the inner workings of Satan and how Jesus has come along to bind and break the work of Satan. And now he's warning them, gather with me, be for me and not against me. Now he's going to go on to threaten them. In verse 31, Matthew 12, 
Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. With all the evidence you have, Pharisee and teachers of the law, with all the signs that God has shown you, you have abused God and are cut off today. The Spirit cuts you off. And I, I just want to remind us that who do you think this hurts more? You are talking about the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these men, speaking quick, slow to listen, they, they are saying to the Son in the Holy Trinity, you are evil, and the Spirit of God, you are evil. How insulting is that to our Lord and Savior? Why did Jesus not just walk out on this plan of coming to save us at this point? Look at the heart of man, Father. There's nothing more we could do. We've given them a chance. This is how my own people treat me, not to mention the Gentile. But he held his, he reserved himself, held his anger and followed through with the work of redemption for you. Praise God. John chapter 16 verse 8 says, and this is speaking of the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Before you came to Christ, you were wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. The very work of the Spirit at that moment and in the moments today as the Spirit is still moving and saving people is to show them what it is. To show them what it is to have relationship with God. To be right about sin. To be right about righteousness and judgment. Because if we get these things muddled up, we're not running for a Savior, are we? I mean, if you don't know your sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come, well, what's the point? You don't need a savior. You're right without him. And the Spirit of God is still doing this. And there is still a resistance to the Spirit of God. Now, some say that the unforgivable sin that is unforgivable in this life and the next is one that could only have happened at that point in time where they have seen Jesus in the flesh, they have witnessed the miracle of God being born of a virgin and doing signs and wonders like no other before and no other, other since. And they attribute all of that evidence and say it is of Satan. And then God cuts them off. But we do see this happening even today. We do see this happening even today. And Stephen, just moments before Stephen is stoned to death by his own people, he says in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, you stiff-necked... This is what to say when you probably want to get stoned. Like, this is the last part of what he's going to say. And then he's the first martyr for the faith. He put it all on the line. And, and it's because he loved them. He, he described the way of salvation and his thanks was stones. 
Acts chapter 7, verse 51, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. What's the unforgivable sin? Well, if you resist the Holy Spirit, you are out of sorts with your relationship with sin, righteousness, and judgment. You have no Savior. And what makes you unforgiven in this life and the next? Well, resist the Holy Spirit. Don't come to the Lord Jesus. Stay in your sin because no matter what you do in this life or the next, there is no salvation found outside of the name Jesus Christ. You would think these people would be terrified at this, but I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm terrified going through this. You think these people would be terrified, but I promise you, their hearts are so hard. I don't, I don't see any softening. Actually, it's pro- it gets worse for Jesus, the insult, but we'll, we'll carry on. And I just want to further that point of, of the Spirit of God, that this is happening today. People are hardening their hearts. Jesus in John 3, chapter 7 said, you must be born again, born of spirit, to see the kingdom of God. There's no getting to the kingdom of God without being born again, without coming to Jesus. And so if you are in that state, your heart is hardened. Your neck is stiff. Your ears are deaf. Your eyes are blind. But today, as an ambassador of Jesus myself, I ask, I plead with you, come to Jesus Trust that he died for your sins. Trust that he rose again for you, that you may have forgiveness of sin and newness of life. Be born again. Jesus responds to this insult. Verse 33 of Matthew chapter 12. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. I just want to point you back to verse 25 in Matthew 12. Remember when Jesus said, oh, it just says of Jesus. Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew what was going on in their heart. He's, he's, prob- he's the only one. We can look at fruit and get an idea of what someone's like. I can see the caliber of your life and go, probably fears God and loves Jesus, like just just from the way you live your life. Wonderful. Praise God. But we can also see the opposite. Unlike us, though, who need to wait and see fruit and wonder where someone's at, Jesus knows the thoughts of man. He knew where these guys were at. He knew their evil way. Not only this, something probably a little more to note of Jesus is comes from John chapter 2, 24 and 25. This is what we call Christology. We're learning about the attributes of Jesus. Something that separates maybe some of what he could do, empowered by the Spirit, that we're not able to do as easily. John chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. But Jesus uh, would not entrust himself to them, for he knew... All people. It's going to explain what that he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. He knows your thoughts. He knows what's in you. And doesn't that remind us of our God? Isn't that an, an exact attribute of the Father? 
uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom you must give an account. That's incredible. Incredible. And so Jesus is meeting them in their evil and saying, now you stand before a righteous judge, a good judge. I will judge you perfectly because I know your heart. I know your thoughts. So we all are before the sun laid bare as we are before God. And he is the one, Jesus is the one who will judge the nations, judge the intentions of your heart your love, your service, your confession of faith. Knowing their hearts, Jesus goes on, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. It gets better. Sort of sounds like Stephen at this moment. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good for the mouth speaks what, is, what the heart is full of? A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Why are these Israelites acting like this way? Why are they acting in this way? What is going on? Jesus challenges them also in John 8, talking to them about where, where, they are, where they come from. You know, their challenge to Jesus is, well, we're free. We're sons of Abraham. You can't take that from us, Jesus. Jesus responds quite poetically. Uh, John chapter 8, from verse 39, If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. And Jesus gives the answer for why they're acting up like this. Maybe the reason for why this whole interaction is happening in Matthew 12. And it comes just there at John chapter 8 verse 4. Uh, sorry, John chapter 8 verse 37. Because you have no room for my word. You can't accept it. There's no place for what I'm saying in your heart. What a tragedy. Not only is there no place, but they're going to speak so presumptuously. Being hardened. So hardened. To then commit the unforgivable sin. Now, Jesus did say there, you are doing the works of your own father. And he goes on to say that your father's the devil. If your heart is full of wickedness, full of evil, you're more like a Pharisee and a legal expert rather than someone who just wants to give Jesus room in your heart to listen to his word, to abide in his presence, to have a relationship with him. You're of God. But if you don't want those things... You still belong to the prince of the power of the air that is at work in the sons of disobedience. If God were your father, you would love me, says Jesus, for I have come here from God. Isn't that wonderful logic? If you loved God and I've come from God, I am the representative of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But now that you've rejected me, how on earth could you say that you love the Father? Because if you loved him, you'd love me. 
And that's why if you reject one, you reject the other. You reject Jesus, you don't have the Father. You reject the Father, you do not have the Son. Then Jesus goes on to rebuke them for the very thing that has put them in this mess, and it's their tongue. Matthew 12 from verse 36, but I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. And they've, they, they only said half a sentence. Remember when I started? Half a sentence. And this is, this is the wrath that's been brought upon them now because of that presumption. For by your words, you will be acquitted and by your words, you will be condemned. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And these defile them. Jesus knows you already, but, you but the way you use your mouth exposes what's in there, maybe to the rest of the world. If I could put it as a metaphorically, You'll be suspended above your words at the end of your life. Everything you've ever said will lay bare underneath you. And you're going to be dropped on the words that you've used. Some of you are going to fall onto a bed of flowers. Others will fall on a sword. Because by your mouth, you will be justified or you will be acquitted. Luke 12.3 says this, What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roof. That's why Christians are very careful with their tongue. Very careful. It's just a, just a few quick movements and we, could, we can sin. After all this abuse and slander heaped upon Jesus you don't think it could get much worse. These men have defiled the Trinity itself. But I won't labor the point, but in this very interaction, Matthew chapter 12, um, verse 38 to 39, in this very interaction, we see that these, these men, they want more signs. They go, show us a sign of who you are. He's just cast out demons. He'll be doing mighty miracles all across the Mediterranean. And you think it couldn't get worse. But the blasphemy of these men continues as they say, well, show us, some, show us some reasons and then we might believe. Like as if God has got to grovel and, and curtail to these wicked men. And so just as I close up today, I just want to simply end with this. If you have yet to receive Jesus, make today the day of salvation. Don't wait to meet the mighty judge. And see, this is the, this is the incredible part about what I've just said. Jesus is the most lowly and humble of us all. He loves you with a love that is unspeakable. And he is, his arms are wide open to forgive you, to take all of your preconceived shame, all of your preconceived doubts. It's just washed away in the blood of Jesus. Receive Jesus, trust Jesus, follow Jesus. 
Take hold of eternal life that is found in him. Don't be like these men who have hardened themselves to the point where, the Holy, where they have committed the unforgivable sin, where the Holy Spirit is just no longer going to have an impact there on their hearts. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that your word goes out in power and that, Lord, there will be people, Lord, who really need to reassess their relationship with you. There's also others, Lord, who can maybe more boldly go out and proclaim these truths, Lord, because we don't want to meet the judge. We want to meet the Savior. And we've done that by placing our faith in you, Jesus. We are forgiven. But, Lord, there are others who don't yet know you. There are others who mock you, mock you, Jesus. But Lord, let us be gracious like you were gracious. Let us continue the mission as you continued the mission when you kept walking out our salvation and not giving up on us, even when abuse was heaped as high as the heaven to you. We love you and thank you, Lord God, for sending your son. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.